0: Right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you very much for coming on this typically wintry night. Uh, Firstly, could you, like me, turn off your mobile phones, or at least turn them to silence? Uh, I'm Toby Dodge. At the moment, I am the Director of the Middle East Centre here at the London School of Economics, and um, it gives me great pleasure to uh, welcome Dr. Ahron Bregman from uh, King's College, London. I think it's... uh, we were just speculating. He thought uh, we'd got the wrong room and you, the, the numbers of people coming here were to see Madonna, but he's clearly, with uh, all due respect, not Madonna. But he is, I think, an excellent um, academic t- just across the road at King's, where we, our, our younger sister institution, as it were. Um, uh, been there many years. I think uh, uh, Ahom was born in Israel after six years of army service during which he took part in the 1982-Lebanon War and reached the rank of captain. He left the army to work at the Knesset as a parliamentary assistant. I think more importantly for this evening's talk, he did his doctorate with Laurie Friedman in the War Studies Department of King's College, uh, and now he teaches in the (laughs) Department of War Studies. He's the author of numerous publications, amongst amongst others, and the ones you may well have read, The Fifty Years' War, Israel and the Arabs, uh, a companion book to a six-part BBC television documentary, and his book, Cursed Victory. A History of Israel and the Occupied Territories, published by Penguin very admirably in 2014. And the topic of his talk tonight, which also may explain the excellent size of the audience Israel, the Arab Spring, domestic politics, and the future of the Arab Israeli peace process. So without further ado, please give your warmest welcome to Dr. Brigman.
1: often um, look up for my notes and think so many people and can I teach them or give them something new to take home with them just as a reward for for coming all the way and perhaps it's the nature of the topic that um, Most people often leave my talks, my lectures, a bit upset. And I think that's what we are going to see tonight, too, because um, the things I want to say are uh, quite upsetting, Um, and I'm going to um, be quite bold and perhaps not so politically correct in some of the things. But I think that given the situation, especially between um, Israelis and um, Palestinians, it is important for um, people like me, if I may, uh, to speak out and to say things as they are. And um, I apologize if some of the things will be too bold and too perhaps politically incorrect for some of you. I'll focus on Israel or Israelis and Palestinians. In the background, the Arab Spring. And starting with Syria perhaps, has always been the view in Israel that the peace process should start with Syria. The view that negotiations with Syria should be given a priority over negotiations with the Palestinians. That the approach should be Syria first. And for good reasons. The conflict between Israel and Syria is very simple. And the solution is simple. It's all about a border dispute. Just to decide where the future border between the countries, just left of the Golan Heights, will run. That's all unlike the conflict with the Palestinians where you you have to start from scratch to establish a state, institution, armed forces, refugees, Jerusalem, you name it. It's so difficult, so complicated. On the Golan Heights, there is no Temple Mount, no problems with refugees. And you'll be surprised to hear that prime ministers of Israel, including the current prime minister, Netanyahu, were all willing to give back the Golan Heights to Syria. 98, 99% of it back to Syria. I'm talking about Netanyahu, I'm talking about Rabin, I'm talking about Paris, I'm talking about Barack. And in 2000, they were very close to reach an agreement with the Goran Heights, very close. It didn't happen, but it was within reach. Now, the Arab Spring puts an end to it. It might, it will take many generations before Israel and Syria resume their peace negotiations. And the best sign that in Israel, they don't regard peace negotiations with Syria as a realistic option, is the decision which was made there two weeks ago to allocate money New Budgets to improve infrastructure on the Golan Heights and to remove old minefields. That's a sign that the Israelis understand that peace negotiations with Syria are not going to restart in the future. 10, 20, 30 years will have to wait for these talks. To be resumed. Well, it leaves us yet again with the Israeli Palestinians, Palestinian negotiations, which is the only game in town now. And John Kerry is there, and he will soon unveil his peace program. He is very determined, he is doing the right things he understands the lesson of previous negotiations, that if he wants to succeed in Israeli-Arab negotiations, secrecy is important. therefore, we don't know what's there in the programme and we'll probably not know until he stands there in front of us and give us the details. I would like him to surprise me. I don't think he will. Let me tell you what will not be in the program, in his peace program. It will not be a final peace agreement between Israelis and Palestinians. It will be just a general program where they will repeat the old things already negotiated in the past. Look at the irony. They regard this as an achievement to repeat the past, not to add anything new. I will be very surprised if they add anything new to what was already agreed in the past. So it's not about a breakthrough; it's about a repetition of what already agreed, or already discussed. And the program, and it's going to be based on the Clinton program of 2000. He will add a little bit; he will, you know, uh, uh, change a little bit here and there. But the Clinton program of 2000 is the program. What is it? A two-state solution: Israel and Palestine living side by side. Palestine on the Gaza Strip and on between 94 and 96% of the West Bank Israel annexed about 6% of the West Bank and compensate the Palestinians giving them land elsewhere a bridge or a tunnel connecting the two parts, West Bank and the Gaza Strip no right of return they go to Palestine shared sovereignty of Jerusalem. That's the program. We know the program. What can he add to it? Whatever Kerry will come up with, and even if he surprises us, we'll be killed Mainly by the Israelis. They will try to do it, they're trying to do it now in the negotiation, negotiations with him. Whatever is left of his program will be killed by them in the future. And they will use two methods they will insist on the list of reservations to the program. I urge you, when the program is revealed, to look for this list of reservation, Israeli and Palestinian, but mainly the Israeli list. It will kill the carry program softly. Whatever is left of the program will be killed, especially by the Israelis during the implementation will find the excuse not to do it. Now, I probably leave on you the impression that the Israelis are bad guys. They are not. They are neither better nor worse than you or I. But they truly believe and let me explain to you the Israeli mind. They truly believe that with the Arabs Spring all around, the best option for them is to sit tight and do nothing. That's the bottom line. What if the Arab spring arrived in Jordan? What if the king is killed? Leave Jordan and come to London? What if activists from all over the world come to Jordan? Come closer to the border with Israel and try to enter Israel through the Jordan Valley. Why to give the Jordan Valley to the Jordanian to the Palestinians now, as they ask, as they demand, when it is such a good buffer zone, separating a Jordan, which might collapse, and Israel? It makes sense. And into this equation comes the failure of negotiations with Syria in 2000. Because you see, those who in 2000, those Israelis, who were against signing with Syria at the time, are the same people who are against signing with the Palestinians now. And the Syria The failed talks in 2000, at the time it was regarded as a terrible missed opportunity. Now it is regarded as a blessing. That the Goran Heights is not in Syrian hands, but in Israeli hands. Without telling the government, look what we said to you in 2000, we shouldn't compromise now, we should wait. Add to this the fact that the Israelis will require to give up and to compromise on so much. Again, I'm trying to explain to you why they're not interested. You can say uh, that you don't agree, but it makes sense from their point of view. You have Israel strong holding all the tangibles, the mountains, the rivers, the land, the resources. What can the Palestinians give in return? Nothing. Words. Ask the Israelis, they will say to you empty words. And therefore, it's against human nature. To give up on the assets if we don't give anything in return. It's just against human nature. Why to give up on all these assets? The bottom line, and to make to cut a long story short, the huge uncertainty now. Due to the Arab Spring, and the danger that Jordan might go, the Syrian missed opportunity which was not a missed opportunity, which is not regarded as a missed opportunity anymore. The fact that the Israelis are asked to give up so much makes it very difficult for them to compromise. I would also argue that the conditions are not ripe for a big breakthrough now. Let me try to illustrate to you what are good conditions to conduct a peace process. I'll take you back to 1990, 1991, end of the Cold War. The United States is the only single remaining superpower, no competition anymore with the USSR, a very successful war in the Gulf in 1991. The United States, very powerful. The local actors are weak. Palestinian Yasser Arafat supported Saddam Hussein, a terrible mistake. The king was sitting on the fence, neither here nor there. The Israelis were asked to keep quiet. The Syrians are looking for a new patron because the Russians are not... Uh, uh, the USSR is not a superpower anymore the United States was in a strong position to lead the peace process they've managed to bring to Madrid the Madrid conference in October 1991 leaders who are narrow minded Assad the Israeli Prime Minister Shamir have you heard of Shamir? he was the head of the stern gang under the British. He was a right-wing leader of Israel. You can't find a more right-wing leader in Israel than Shamir. I always tell the story how I interviewed him once for the BBC. He was sitting in front of me. I said to him, Mr. Shamir, can you please move your chair a little bit to the left so you're in front of the camera? He said to the left, never. And, and, and the point is that he was dragged to Madrid, to the Madrid conference. This right-wing Israeli leader started the peace process between Israelis and Palestinians and Syrians. Well, it was possible only because the conditions were there. There was a superpower. Someone could, could dictate World politics. Now we do not have these conditions, but it's urgent to give a big push to a Palestinian state to put an end to the Israeli occupation. And if we want to have a real breakthrough, it is our duty to try and help create the conditions for the peace process to succeed. Now, there are, in my view, three preconditions. If we want the peace process to succeed in the Middle East or to have a momentum, we now need three elements to come together. The first one, what we need is for the Arab Spring to spill over into the West Bank in the shape of a new Palestinian Intifada. It's very controversial what I'm saying to you now. Very controversial. Not an Intifada Against Abu Mazen, but an intifada against the Israeli occupation. I'm talking about a non-violent uprising. It was a stupid idea, especially after 9/11, to send suicide bombers during the second Intifada into Israel to blow up restaurants and pizzerias with children in Tel Aviv especially in Tel Aviv where 85-90% of the people the citizens are liberals who are in favor of a two-state solution anyway I'm told where the Palestinians are tired and they don't have the energy to embark on a third intifada. Well, so they can't have a state. Of course, states are not given on a silver platter. You have to fight for states. I don't want to say this will be really not political correct to say that, that there should be blood. I will not say that. You have to fight for it. The Israelis lost 1% of their population in 1948 fighting for the state. We are all called after our family relatives who were killed in 1948. I am called after Aaron Bregman who was killed in 1948. It is not only the method to get it. But it is also important for the story of creation, for the next generations. What are you going to say to Palestinians in the future, that you went to cocktail parties and the United Nations gave you a state? The Palestinians must play the part, if they want to have a state. Now, I understand that they are very tired because the old man who died last month, Erez Sharon, taught them an unforgettable lesson. They sent suicide bomber after suicide bomber into Israel. 64 suicide bombers blew themselves up in Israel in 2002 or maybe 2001, I can't remember. And he waited patiently. Of course, he reacted to each and every suicide bombing. But he kept the big stick. And when the Palestinians eventually overdid it, they sent a suicide bomber to blow himself up in North Israel in Passover where 30 people were killed. He invaded the West Bank and he turned the West Bank into a a Middle East Dresden. He destroyed everything. And I'm not surprised that the Palestinians are tired and they are scared to embark on a third intifada. But there is no other option for them. That this is the first condition which we need if we want to have some progress, but we need another one. We need a massive international pressure on Israel and on the Palestinians, but especially on Israel, because Israel is a strong party they have the assets. This already started, by the way, all these boycotts on Israel. If you ask me, will these boycotts on Israel work, succeed? My answer will be, Yes, it will. It worked in South Africa. Why shouldn't it work in Israel? If you ask me if I am in favor of boycotts, my answer is no. Number one, because my old mom lives in Israel, and bread will be expensive, and she will phone me to help her to buy the bread. <laughs> but I, coming from the Department of War Studies, I believe that all of these tools, including war and pressures, they work best when you don't actually use them. When you have this threat in the background, behave yourself otherwise. And therefore, you can see that most of these boycotts are led by it's private initiatives, if you want, banks, etc. But these are not boycotts by governments. And if asked, I would suggest not to do it now. It should be in the background. And I can tell you that the Israelis are already under pressure. They talk about, the discuss it. And when I say that massive pressure should put on Israel and the Palestinians, I'll, I'll talk about the Palestinians in a minute. I don't mean necessarily that sticks should be used, sometimes carrots work better and the best example perhaps of soft pressure producing fantastic results. Is the Israeli withdrawal from the Sinai? I'm sure that you are intelligent, intelligent, educated. But I'm pretty sure that if I ask you when did Israel, for the first time, pull out, withdrew from occupied lands, you will say to me after 1979, after the signing of the Israeli-Egyptian peace treaty. Well, there are some of my, of my students saying you know the answer, but the truth of the matter is that the Israelis withdrew from occupied territories for the first time in 1974 and 1975. 1979 was the third stage. In 1974, The American administration, which I think was led at the time by probably Nixon, they came to the Israelis and they said to them, We want you to withdraw, even symbolically in the Sinai. We will reward you, we will give you $3 billion a year forever. You ask yourself, why the Israelis now, even now, regardless of the financial situation in the United States, why do they get three billion a year? 1974, a promise was given to them by the American administration. If you withdraw from the Sinai, 35 miles, no more than 35 miles, three billion a year, forever, and ever. Believe me, is a long time. The Americans say to the Israelis, we'll give you something more. We'll protect you from the Russians of the Cold War, 74, 75. We'll give you something else. We'll give you technologies which will be the best in the Middle East. We also (coughs) sell our airplanes to Saudi Arabia and to Egypt but we promise you a 20-year gap technology. Can you imagine that? I discussed with my students today the 1982 war. On the 8th of June, 1982, the Israelis destroyed one-third of the Syrian Army, of the Syrian Air Force, shooting down 96 airplanes, losing none, zero good technology, back to 1974 again. Americans said to the Israelis, we'll give you some more. We promise you that we will not talk, we will not discuss anything with the PLO before the PLO recognized you accepted resolution 242. Two. Until 1988, the Americans will not speak to them. Only in 1988 the Palestinians accepted resolution 242 two, and this was the first time the American Spoke, discussed, negotiated with them. The Americans said to the Israelis, We'll give you some more. We promise you that never will we put on the negotiating table a peace plan before showing it to you first. The Palestinians are right when they say that the Americans are not objective. Mediators, because they always show the plans to the Israelis first. I promise you, even carry now. It was promised in 1974. $3 billion a year forever, not recognizing the PLO, protecting you from the Russians, giving you best technologies in the world. The Minister of Defense of the time, Shimon Peres, he is now the President of Israel, said, they gave us so much, you couldn't refuse and they withdrew 35 kilometers in the desert in 1975. That's international pressure. You don't have to use sticks. Annoying, of course. Why to reward someone for an occupation? Doesn't matter. We want peace. So that's the sort of pressure which I mean. If you can do it by carrots, that's better. But there must be pressure. Otherwise, there is no reason for the Israelis to move. Why should they? But there must be pressure on the Palestinians too. Negative and positive. The Europeans give them a lot of money. Say to the Palestinians, compromise, otherwise you will not get the money. Or if you compromise, you'll get more money. You need 20, 25 billion dollars to resettle the refugees. We're giving it to you, but agree to give up on your demand to have a right of return because you can't have it anyway. The Arab world must help the Palestinians to decide. Some of the decisions are not in Palestinian hands. The future of Jerusalem and Aqsa. Any decision regarding an answer is going to affect Muslims in Indonesia, in Africa, all over the world. It's not a Palestinian matter. You need Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, all of them to put pressure on the Palestinians, positive pressure. You've got to agree, Abu Mazl. We are with you. So that's the second condition a precondition we need, namely pressure, international pressure on Israel and the Palestinian, including private boycotts. The third... The third... I'm nearly there. The third condition, which we are going to have anyway, is a right-wing government in Israel. A right-wing government which could deliver the compromises. Israel of 2014, and I exclude Tel Aviv, not including Tel Aviv, okay, just for the exercise, Is a right wing religious nationalistic nation. Not a criticism, an observation. That's Israel. Not as nationalistic as Serbia, not as religious as Iran. But if you take a little bit of Iran, a little bit of Serbia, mix it together, that's Israel. That's it very nationalistic and religious. It's a different Israel. And to lead such a nation to compromise on land, on Jerusalem, you need a right-wing government. We'll get it anyway. But that's the third condition. So that's the situation and here I think I'll stop. In a nutshell, even if the Kerry program seems to be positive, there is little chance that we'll see the real breakthrough which will deliver a Palestinian state. Very unlikely, because the conditions are not there. For the program to succeed, we need a Palestinian non-violent Intifada, a massive international pressure on Israel and on the Palestinians, and a right-wing government in Israel to to deliver the, the, the compromises. Thank you very much.
0: Right. I thank our speaker for two things. Firstly, for coming in well on time, which is always a, 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 a mm-hmm. blessed relief for the chair. But also, and much more importantly, for giving us so much to think about, so much to talk about. We have 50 minutes. There are microphones in the order. If you put your in the in the auditorium, if you put your hands up, I'll pick you. I'll take one or two individually to begin with. Now, here's the trick. A question ends in a question mark, and it isn't very long. <laughs> We've had one speaker, and we'll only have one speaker tonight. So if your question meanders off without a question mark at the end of it, I shall cut you off and make up what your question was going to be. Mm-hmm. So from uh, that's that's the disciplinary function of the chair this evening. Right, uh, if that gentleman there first, thank you.
1: Um, I just want to ask. Uh, thank you for talking. Um, what role was sort of the uh, the nuclear talks in Iran have on the possibilities for peace in Israel?
0: Excellent. So hold that. Iran first. Yes, you, sir. Uh, With your pen in the air, that's right.
2: Beforehand, I understood what an intifada was because I always (laughs) consider that as being violent by definition. Could you please elaborate about what is a non-violent intifada, please?
0: And if you hand the mic to the gentleman behind you, that will be the third and final question for this round.
2: Hi. uh, Do you not feel that the growing Arab population within Israel is sufficient pressure for Israel to act on peace talks sooner rather than later.
0: And I would add to that what he's actually talking about is the one-state uh, What about the one-state solution? So you've got uh, the influence of Iran and the nuclear question. Can an intifada be violent? And what about the Arab population possibly leading to a one-state solution? Wow. <laughs> about nuclear,
1: nuclear. The Israelis... Um, are very unhappy about what's happening there. The Israeli instinct is to raise it to the ground. When you raise it to the ground, you're sure that it's not going to, 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 to happen and they're not going to have the nuclear uh, bombs. But the Israelis are resigned now to the fact that it's going to be a diplomatic solution. And I think uh, I can see that Netanyahu is not, is hardly. Hardly mentioning it at all. In fact, he's going to Washington, and he perhaps will raise it with uh, uh, Obama. But it's it's not the first priority now. For Netanyahu, it was a way to distract from in the past from the Palestinian issue. It's not top on the agenda uh, any long any, anymore. Intifada. As far as I know, I don't speak Arabic. The um, Word intifada means shaking off. Are there people here who speak Arabic? Probably not. Yeah. It's not it's not it's not it's not necessarily it's not necessarily violent. But even if it is even if the meaning of the word is violent. I wouldn't suggest to the Palestinians um, to, to, to embark on a violent uh, intifada. What, what I mean by a non-violent intifada is, for example, for the Palestinians of the West Bank um, to get a message through Twitter, Schmitter, something, <laughs> um, saying to them, uh, tomorrow morning, 7 o'clock, all of you, 3, 4 million people of the West Bank get out of your houses, wrap yourself in white sheets, carry flowers, and sit on the streets, on the roads. That's my intifada. Wow. So, okay, not the three million of them will get out. One million of them. That's the intifada. Why not? If it's violent the Israeli army will crush them, of course. The Israeli Arabs. There are 22% 22 of the Israeli population are non-Jews, Arabs. They are second-class citizens in Israel, not least because they don't serve in the Israeli army. If you want to get a jo- good job in Israel, if you want to succeed, if you go, want to go up the ladder, you have to serve in the Israeli army. They don't serve. If you go to the villages, you can see that they are second-class citizens. And I can listen to them now, to their voices. And they are saying things never said before. Until 1967, of course, they lived under military rule in Israel. And in October uh, 2000, the Israeli army, or the Israeli police, I think, um, killed 13 of them, shot them for the first time that Israeli citizens were killed by the army, by the police. And this, in my view, future historians, I think, looking back, will regard this moment, October 2000, the turning point in Israeli-Arab relationships inside Israel. So the situation is bad in terms of the relationships. Now, there are new ideas now that in the future, some of them will become part of the future Palestine. They will not be transferred physically. That's ethnic cleansing. You don't do it. But because Israel is going to annex some lands from the West Bank, the compensation will be giving the Palestine lands with Israeli Arabs. They will not be transferred physically but the line on the map will move and they will become Palestinians in the future. That's a problem. They don't want it, of course. But I can see, I can hear the ideas. In In the past it was negotiated between the Israelis and the Palestinians but secretly. Now it's in the open. So The Israeli Arabs or the Palestinians living in Israel is a huge problem. Perhaps when the Arab-Israeli or the Palestinian conflict is over, maybe this is the future conflict in Israel proper, between the 22% unhappy Palestinians and the Israeli population. It's a very pessimistic view of the future. But I think that with such minority, which is so big, Unhappy, discriminated, there's going to be war. I think that you can improve the sewage, the roads, the hospital, the schools. But the question is whether nationalism will not take over and there will be a problem. I think that that was a
0: bit too long. No, not at all. Any more questions? Right. Uh, I'll take some down here. You sir, first in the in the tie, and if you wait for the microphone to come. It'll uh, arrive shortly. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's on. It's on. Thank you
2: very much for this uh, rather political presentation. I would gladly debate uh, that it was a. Um,
1: um, the academic uh, nature of your presentation is debatable, definitely. Uh, my question is regarding the division between Hamas and Fatah, and how do you foresee uh, the continuation of the peace process, um, and how do you see a potential partner for peace uh, with the incitement in uh, school
3: books in the Palestinian Authority? Thank you.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Right. Yes. And, and you then on the front. Hi. Thank you for your talk. Um, as a follow-up to what you just said, can, is there anything that the government can do to prevent this sort of anger or to kind of quell it? Is there anything that the government can do to quell the 22% and make them feel less like second-class citizens? And what did you mean by the best option for Israel right now is to, quote, sit tight? What is, what, what is part of sitting tight? Is it securitization? Excellent.
4: Um, yes. Yeah. Hi. Um, what triggers do you think you need for international pressure to um, kind of step up if human rights violations on
2: both sides haven't been enough um, for the U.S. and other powers to intervene?
1: Okay. Let's, let's, Four yeah. questions there, I think. Yeah. Okay. About uh, Hamas, Hamas and Fatah. Because you said that my um, um, uh, presentation was political, so let me just continue with the... Hamas and Fatah, they are Palestinians. Under the British, you had the Haganah, the Irgun, the Stern Gang, what the British called the Stern Gang. They all fought against the British and against each other. The Haganah went to the British and said to them, The terrorists, the Jewish terrorists are hiding there, and the British went there and caught them. But when the State of Israel was established, all of these people, Haganah, Irgun, Stern Gang, united. They were joined the Israeli army. They are Jews, Israelis. And the same story is with Hamas and Fatah. They are Palestinians. They have the differences. I know that the Hamas Charter, I've read it. It's quite extreme. It's a stupid document. Really, you know. Why to say that the Jews are Nazis? What a stupid idea. But it's a charter. We should check their work on the ground. And Hamas is very pragmatic. Yesterday, if you read Israeli newspaper, newspapers, they deployed their units along the fence, or not far from the fence, to stop firing by Islamic jihad on Israel. A rocket fell this morning, thank you. Yes, of course. of course. You can't, you can't, you can't, you know, stop it altogether. You can't, of course, I understand. The bottom line in answering your, your uh, question, there are Palestinians and they will cooperate uh, together. Now, look, you also used the term no partner. Yes, the Israelis, uh, Ehud Barak, when he left Camp David, said, we have no partner. What does it mean you don't have partner? Your partner was Yasser Arafat. It's like saying, you know, like being married, and say, well, I don't have a wife. Maybe she's not blonde. Maybe it's not your your style, but she's your wife. She's your partner. Yasser Arafat is a partner. Abu Mazen is a partner. You can't say that you don't have a partner. You can say, I don't like my partner. This is not my taste. I don't like the fact that Yasser Arafat failed to shave himself every morning. But he's a partner. School books. I agree that in order to have good relationships between Israelis, I don't know if you asked about the books the the Palestinians should change some of the texts. It's interesting (coughs) after the 1967 war the Israelis collected all the textbooks from Palestinians in the West Bank could change them. They changed them. Um, all, you know, paragraphs and uh, anti-Jewish and anti-Israeli uh, texts were taken out, etc. were censored. I agree. I agree that we should educate the Palestinians and the Israelis too. You know, uh, to respect each other. to Respect each other. And I think that what we will have to do somewhere in the future is what they did in South Africa, which is reconciliation. Uh, it will be necessary, I think. And I hope that there are optimistic NGOs you know, who already started thinking how to do reconciliation between Israelis and Arabs uh, in the future. About the uh, Palestinians living in Israel, the, 20, the, the 22%. I think that we should aspire to have them doing, not perhaps, in, uh, not serving the Israeli army, but doing national service or something like that. So they will b- become part of society, more integrated into, into a society. I think that um, there should be more budgets, uh, more, more investment in Palestinian um, uh, villages. You know, there are many villages, not many, uh, less than 40, but still it's a number, of Palestinian villages which are not connected to electricity, water in Israel. It's amazing. 2014, they are not connected. They don't have roads, they don't have buses. They, amazing, I visited one of them uh, three years ago. Um, so, Israel should try and cooperate them better into, into the society. And the optimistic view is that, you know, maybe it will be okay. The pessimistic view is that nationalism will um, take over in the end and there will be big problems. What I mean by the Israelis sitting tight. There is a tendency in Israel to sit tight. Namely, when it's quiet, when there is no intifada, When the Palestinians don't throw stones, when they don't attack, when they don't send suicide bombers, the Israelis say, let's sit tight, because there is no reason to change anything. It's quiet. When the Palestinians send suicide bombers, and when they throw stones, and when they attack the Israelis, the Israelis say, let's sit tight, because we can't compromise under pressure. So the view is, Let's not do anything. That's what I mean by the Israeli tendency, even to use this expression, to sit tight and to wait patiently, because there is no wish to really change the situation. The Israelis, you have to understand, the Israelis do not want, want peace. Don't misunderstand me. They are not willing to pay the price for it. It's a big difference. About the international pressure, quite frankly, I can't remember the question.
0: What would be the triggers for this pressure? Why would the international community rally to put pressure on Israel?
1: I think that the pressure is now done by, again, private companies. There are some uh, banks in in, in North Europe already pulling the. uh, Uh, Money, activities, etc., from from um, from Israel. The question is, what will um, make governments put pressure uh, on Israel? I I believe that if the um, uh, peace uh, process um, fails, if nothing comes of it, if there is a Palestinian intifada, it will force the internet and the Israelis continue to build settlements the Palestinian, I think the Europeans, will move. I think so. And they will put this uh, international pressure that I'm talking about.
0: Yeah. Right. Yes, some questions up at the back. Uh, the gentleman with admirably long hair first, um, and then the lady sitting on the step. <coughs> uh,
1: Dr. Bregman, um, Honestly, I almost uh, dropped tears when you talked about the lack of compromises offered by the Palestinians to the Israelis. My question is, what is more precious
2: than the land and hundreds of thousands of ethnically cleansed Palestinians to give from
1: the colonized to the colonizer? And if I may add, as, as an Israeli scholar, how actually did you feel when you suggested to the, when you suggest to the
2: Palestinians what to do? And finally, um, and finally,
1: when we talk about Israel as a Jewish state, how come that is different than Iran? I didn't get all the questions. Right, so, I, think um, I can repeat if, if you few. So like. one is
0: the land compromise, asking as a compromise on land. Two is how you feel as an Israeli scholar advising Palestinians. And three, Israel as is a Jewish state, why is that different to Iran? Is that right? Yeah. Okay, thank you. you got those. And the, the lady sitting on the step.
4: Um, hi. Uh, you talked a lot about uh, using the carrot uh, method instead of using the sticks. Uh, with regards to the settlement expansion, the settlement building, do you not think that's a major obstacle to peace and that you know, instead of using the carrot method, the stick method would be better? Because clearly in so many years nothing has curbed settlement b- building, which is continuing to expand today. And what can be done? to stop that.
0: Well, the final question is around the, the lady standing up right at the back there.
4: Uh, well, hi. Speaking about the flower and defada you are talking about, to what extent do you think that is it's going to be applic- uh, applicable? You know, the, the Palestinians did it once, twice, the Israeli settlers cracked down on them, and the Israeli army cracked down on them. So is it really like uh, applicable, you know, on the ground?
0: You got five questions. Three from one person, two from the other two. Yeah, right. Yeah.
1: The question about the land compromise, can you repeat this one please?
0: Well, maybe it's not a question, maybe it's more as a statement. Like why decolonizer why did decolonize need to offer decolonizer something? Yeah.
1: The Palestinian demand from the Israelis is to have the 22% of old Palestine and not to touch it. Okay? That's resolution two for two. And they're right. However, I'm, I'm answering you. Enough already. Let's
0: not have a comment. What about resolution 194?
1: I mean, yeah, yeah.
0: I'll come to you in time, but let's not have a conversation between the audience and the speaker.
1: What the Palestinians um, ask the Israelis is to not to touch the 22% of old Palestine, namely the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and not to build settlements there. And their request is absolutely right. I personally agree. They are, they are, they are right. It's illegal to build settlements on occupied territory, International law, etc, but even the Palestinians, the negotiators, cyber cut and all the rest, understand that if they want to have the state, they must be pragmatic and practical. And on the West Bank. On about 3-4% of the West Bank, you have huge blocks of settlements. If you fly over the West Bank, and you look down... Just a minute, just a minute, let me, let me, I respect that you... And you look down, what you see in three main blocks, red roofs. According to international law, it's illegal, I agree. If you want to be practical and the Palestinian negotiators are practical you have to agree for the Israelis to keep the blocks. Arafat agreed to it in 2000 in Camp David and ask the Israelis to, comp- to, to compensate you by giving you land elsewhere or giving you other things. For example, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip will have to be connected units of course you can say we can have states which are not connected, Japan, four islands but the idea about Palestine is that the two parts should be connected there should be a bridge a tunnel it will pass through Israel here is a fair compensation for the land they are taking from the Palestinians you've got to be pragmatic and the Palestinians agreed Yes Arafat agreed. So don't you agree with what Arafat agreed? No. <laughs> That's another matter. That's another matter. The Palestinians have the right to negotiate for themselves. And it's fair to accept what they've accepted because they want to have they want to they want to have their own state. Again, what I agree with you is that it was absolutely illegal to build settlements on occupied lands. And the question here about continuing to build settlements, well, it's illegal. And we see the world reaction. Perhaps this would be the trigger to bring international pressure on Israel. The one positive thing about it. About the idea of a Jewish state... Ah, oh, yes, of course. Of course. Look, yeah, no. I give, I advise, I give my advisors. They can accept it. They can reject it. They don't have to accept it. I want peace for them and for the Israelis. Why is about the left wing? What, what about the left wing in Israel? What about it?
0: Uh, this is an order a ah, participation, <laughs> so let's just <laughs> keep on with answering the questions, and then I'll get to other people if we have sure. time. sure.
1: So I think that settlements, um, uh, uh, I've, already, I've already said that settlements is, is, is illegal, you know, unacceptable and uh, uh, wrong, but um, the 3 4%, the big blocks are accepted by the Palestinians. I have something here about the Intifada. Um, I've already answered well, you,
0: that. I you've think. got three questions. One is the, Israel, the, the religious nature of Israel.
1: No, he gave up on this. I think.
0: Oh, no, I'm asking it. All right. <laughs> The, settle, the, se- the, the, the second one is how settlement expansion, how to stop it. And then the, the third was this image, of, uh, or your image, of the flower intifada. What possible uh, what possible headway can it make? How can
4: it try to prevent the right wing settlers to crack down on them, peaceful activists, Palestinian
0: activists?
1: What oh. is it cracking down on them? Everywhere? Okay, we've got that. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. 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 Look, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here not to... Defend Israel you know I'm a critic of Israel if you if you if you if you you, uh, look 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 Um,
0: excuse me can you shut up and then I'll come to you and ask you and you can ask a question if you keep talking I won't come to you and you won't ask a question
1: Jewish settlements I've already uh, answered this question I think illegal and should be accepted by the world by the international community Etc. The Israelis um, do it and it's illegal. Full stop. What else can I um, tell you about it? I think it's a, a wrong a thing to do and again illegal. About the um, Israeli demand to be recognized as a Jewish state by the um, Palestinians, this is a relatively new idea um, introduced by, I think, by the Netanyahu um, government, and um, in my view, was uh, used by him to put another obstacle um, on the uh, road to peace. It will be, be, be very difficult. It uh, might be, might be by Barack, yes. Yeah? You're not listening, are you? Put
0: up your hand, and I'll, I'll let you ask a question. Keep interrupting, and you won't. And that goes for everyone. Thank you. Let's have a bit of rules and and order here. I think
1: that the idea to have the Palestinians or the Arab world to recognize Israel as a Jewish state was a device to put an obstacle on the road to peace. It would be very difficult for the Palestinians to accept the idea of Israel as a Jewish state because, again, 22% of the people who who live in Israel are non-Jews. There are, there are Muslims or Christians, uh, etc. That's about a um, Jewish um, state. About the um, what you call flower intifada or non-violent, uh, uh, non-violent intifada. I think it is possible. I think that the Israeli army will be uh, very very careful not to open fire, for example, against uh, against uh, Palestinians and. Um, because they will understand that it will attract uh, world attention. Um, But there was another point there, which was uh, raised by you, the fact that settlers, um, especially in the Hebron area, I think, are very, very violent uh, against the the Palestinians and the army uh, does nothing at all or or, or very little. Terrible, what can I say about it? They are armed, the settlers, and um, They attack the Palestinians and the army does very little about it. It's true. I know. That's my answer.
0: Right, another round. Yes, one of our previous interveners, uh, on the basis of a promise, she can now ask a question.
4: Thanks very much for your your presentation. Um, Well, I have a lot, but I'll have to cut it short, of course. Yes, you will. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, one with regard to your, uh, you know, proposal about soft pressure and rewarding Israel for the concessions it could potentially make. Do you really think that more aid to Israel would bring about peace? I mean, you participated in the criminal invasion of Lebanon and you know that very well. And I find it quite Orwellian, actually, what you're proposing. Uh, the second point is the fact that you are talking about the uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict, as you like to call it, as, as something that started in 1967. And I think that it did not start in 1967. You are basically making no mention of the fact that hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were kicked out, ethnically cleansed in 1948. And I think if you want to talk about Palestine, we need to put that in the right historic context. Yeah. Now. Can I, can I continue? Yeah, one
0: more and then, yeah.
4: Okay. Right. So, and, and then finally, when you talk about Israel restraining itself, you just said that Israel could potentially try to restrain itself if, if possibly pal- Palestinians bring about another uprising. I mean, are you serious? Do, do you watch the news every Friday and see what happens when peaceful protesters go out and protest in the West Bank? Thank you.
0: Well the question? Right, thank you. Um, and then, <laughs> now the gentleman who interrupted, do you want to ask a question? actually the gentleman behind you. Yeah. Uh, I find your presentation more... Sorry, I'm a bit confused because it was... When you used the word should, it sounds like a normative view rather than academic view Is how things are. So um, I wasn't sure if this is more of an ideological uh, debate, what should be or what th- how things are. Okay, and then the gentleman here, yeah. Yes, here, yeah.
2: Sorry, just to kind of add to uh, the lady's point up there, if we're going to talk about historical context, you know, the numbers are that 700,000, the, the, the uh, estimates are 700,000 Palestinians evicted from their homes in 1948. In the oh, there water. is going to be a question, is uh, um, yeah, Yes. <laughs> no, no, like oh, now, oh, what's uh, the question? So I think, um, do you, how, isn't it important that we kind of we keep up... The, the, I mean, the, the, there's more facts to get to the question. Um, so the important thing is that at the same time, 812,000, that's more than 100,000 more, Jews were evicted from Arab states at the, in, in that same time period. So that's the first thing you've got to remember. Second thing, 300,000 of the 700,000 were evicted by Arab forces who said, come leave, come leave or, or force and then right get rid of the Israelis now, the and come back. Being The question being is... Um, when we talk about historical context, isn't it absolutely imperative that we talk about the accurate historical context on both sides and not just focus on the one point? Um,
0: okay, both point sides have uh, come. Uh, uh, both sides now. Is there a qu- Yes, you t- this will be the final question of this round. Yeah, you in the blue jumper. Yeah.
2: Okay, thank you very much for the presentation and for the thought, thoughts that have been provoked and feelings as well. Um, my question essentially is about uh, the settlers and uh, the likelihood that if, and this might be a crystal ball gazing, but if there's an agreement between Israeli and Palestinian negotiators, if um, would that require certain settlements to be dismantled? You mentioned settlement blocks. And in that likelihood, can you imagine the Israeli army opening fire on settlers, such as the ones you mentioned in Hebron, who would refuse to move? And as a rider, if I may, just just connected with that, Um, Recently, there was talk about whether Jewish settlers would be, Israeli settlers would be happy to live under a Palestinian state. Netanyahu said yes, and Bennett said no, and some settlers said maybe. I wonder what you think. On
1: that that count,
0: there's seven questions there,
1: I think. I think that I should should start with this one, because this is the only one I remember. That's right, I've got a note. About the settlers. Eighty percent of the settlers live in three blocks. and the idea, which is accepted by the Palestinians, was accepted in Camp David 2000. The idea is that the Israel, and these blocks are adjacent to the border. So the idea is that you'd be annexed by Israel. The uh, uh, debate in Camp David was not whether or not it will happen. Arafat agreed for the Israelis to annex it, but the debate was whether it is 2% of the West Bank or 5% of the West Bank. So the idea that these settlements will be um, 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 annexed to Israel. About the uh, isolated settlements, the idea is that they will be removed and transferred into the big blocks. Yes, I think that the Israeli army will be able to do it. The idea that settlers, Jewish settlers, will continue to live under a Palestinian authority sounds very liberal. Um, And uh, why not? There are uh, uh, Muslims living in Israel, so why not having Jews living uh, on the West Bank? I think it's a bad idea because the Jews in the isolated Settlements, not in the blocks. The Jews in the blocks are there because it is cheap to buy land there. It's close to Tel Aviv. You can drive. In the isolated settlements, there are the extremists, and to leave them to live under the Palestinians invite problems in the future. It will force the Israeli government to protect them in the future. It is a recipe for war. Therefore, it's better if they are uh, removed from there. The uh, lady there asked me about um, rewarding Israel. I gave this example about the past, about what happened in the Sinai, as, you know, soft pressure, and and, uh, this is what we do. You don't necessarily have to use sticks. And you can use it also with the Palestinians, not only with the Israelis. The Palestinians will need again 20, 25 billion dollars to resettle the refugees from Lebanon and elsewhere. Who's going to pay for it? That's a positive reward. And it was mentioned here, and I'm not answering the question, but I'm referring to the issue. 750,000 Palestinians were kicked out, or left, or departed. I don't want to go into the question what happened to them physically. They left Palestine in 1948, and the Israelis also claim, we also had our refugees, 800,000, to left Arab states. And they put the refugees, one, against the, 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 the other. About 1948, I think the real tragedy of the Palestinians is that us dealing with the occupied territories of 1967 led many of us to forget about the real tragedy which is 1948 and to look at it from an Israeli point of view the biggest Israeli achievement ever and I'm not saying it in a positive way but as a historian looking back now is that our analyzing our lectures, our books about the occupied territories led us to forget about the real tragedy, which is 1948. And in 1988, Yasser Arafat accepted Resolution 242. And the Resolution 242 says that Israel is the right to live on 78% of palestine the palestinians gave up we were forced maybe to give up to give up on 78% of palestine that's the fact they are now asking only for the 22% so you are asking me about 1948 fine but don't be more Palestinian than the Palestinians themselves. No, 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 okay, but your negotiators, your negotiators, okay, who speak, I think, in your name, agreed to accept Resolution 242 in
0: 1988. Were they right to do that? Sorry? Were they right to do that?
1: The the leaders of the Palestinian people, they are the leaders. We can't have... (laughs) we can't have 5 million palestinians you know uh, express the view on any and every issue there is a leadership the recognized leadership was at the time yasser arafat if the palestinians want to um, uh, choose a different leadership this is their right but if the leadership accepted a un resolution
0: that's it now, the final question of that round was a gentleman in the middle there at the back who accused you of being normative. All um, oh, right. Um, I, I suspect you're rather relaxed about that, but I I am
1: that. very much so. Yes, I think that it is should. Where, where are they here? It is what, what should be, in my view.
0: Yeah. Okay, one final. Is it an academic debate where you say how things should be? I think. As a professor at the London uh, School of Economics, I'm perfectly happy with Norma <laughs> So right, right, let's uh, have some more questions. Yes, you first. Thanks. Yeah.
3: Hello. Thank you very
2: much for your presentation. My question is, what could Israel and Palestine w- um, learn from the Northern Ireland peace process, if any?
0: So, so right, you... Lessons from Northern Ireland. All right. Okay. Yes, Thank uh, you. Really? Okay. Uh, just the, the lady up there with the uh, red scarf on, who's just put her hand down, and then after that, the gentleman with the, the white beard up behind.
3: Um, just going back to your point about um, the non-violent intifada, you've made a suggestion about um, Palestinians all coming together and making a resolution on a very particular day, you suggested Twitter, um, to all come out in white robes.
1: Yeah, they don't have to accept my ideas. It was just an I idea that I, you know... know. Um, I I can have a better idea. I think the
3: idea of a peaceful protest, a a nationwide peaceful protest, is a lovely idea. I just wonder how you expect something like that to be possible when um, the nation has been so dramatically split up through the separation from Area C and the levels of um, interaction they actually have with each other and the levels of... um, electricity that's been cut off, water, etc., and, you know, not being able to access. And on just a separate note, um, with Palestinians in Israel, Arabs in Israel, being second-class citizens, because they don't serve in the army, does that make uh, the Haredi second-class citizens as well?
1: Let's make second-class... Sorry, can you, can you just repeat the end of your...
0: So the, the Orthodox Jews who don't serve in the army, are they second-class yeah. citizens as well? Yeah. And the gentleman with the white beard... There. Yeah. Yes, stop. Yeah. My, my question has to do with that second of the three requirements for the, for yeah. the peace process, worldwide pressure of non-governmental and governmental pressure. But yet there's, a, there's an 800-stone gorilla in the, in, in the package, and that is, that is America, the American in the White House, the Congress, and America in the Security Council seems absolutely determined, no matter what the administration, to defeating that kind of pressure. How do you suggest that the peace process circumvent, if possible, the American position? OK. Yes, you, sir. That's right, there's coming the other way. And any more questions, keep your hands up in the air. Right, uh,
2: thank you very much, Yalecho. I just had to add to uh, this gentleman's question. That's the role of the EU, and the EU's been playing a more active role, in, in particularly in this um, attempted peace process. And um, there's been a directive recently um, which has definitely um, caused a reaction among Israeli politicians. That's to do with the directive um, regarding funding for Israeli um, entities in the occupied uh, territories. I'm just wondering, that it's, it's had this delegitimizing effect, or it's attempted to have that, I was wondering if, if that kind of pressure, can, well, can the EU uh, rise to be an alternative player within this process?
0: And the final question for the night is, is the lady in the headscarf right at the back. Thanks.
4: Thank you very much, sir. Um, I come from a country which is... I come from a country which is at war with itself and it, its own borders. So having grown up, I do realize what you're trying to emphasize right now. I read a small article by a British soldier titled War is a Racket. Forgive me for my ignorance and naivety, but who is actually creating other than the Palestinians or the Israelis themselves, who is actually benefiting from this and creating in the international domain greater impediment to Accelerate the either one state or any resolution of this issue. Thank you.
0: Excellent. Thank you. So I, the think final that, five questions.
1: Yeah, I think that yeah, I think I'll need your help, Toby. I'll, I'll start with the European. Uh, sorry, do you have more questions? No, no, no that, that's You're great. Done. Right, some of them are really You've difficult only got five for me. Yeah. About the, 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 the role of the European community, there were two questions uh, about here. Um, I think that the role of the European um, Union is, or um, um, community, is secondary to the East of the United States. The United States is the, 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 the leading um, force here. And I think that um, the Europeans play, and it's a good idea, the role of the Bad policemen. Sometimes, you know, you have the Americans quite pro-Israeli, and the Europeans uh, uh, putting pressure on the Israelis. And I think it should continue uh, like that. The role of the um, uh, European Community, uh, the main role now, is to finance the Palestinian Authority. They send a lot of uh, uh, money, money to to, to there. Um, about the um, um, United States, it's the White House at the end of the day. Of course, there the, the other pressures of Congress and Senate, et cetera. But if the American uh, president, if he uh, decides, if Obama will, will decide to uh, support Kerry and to go you know, full Monty with the uh, peace process, he will probably be able um, to do it in spite of the, of the, of the other uh, pressure. And he seems quite determined, Obama, to, 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 to continue with it. Um, uh, Kerry got the full support of Obama and Netanyahu uh, understand it. It's not easy. It's not easy. There are different uh, forces in the United States, and the Congress is very much pro-Israeli. We know that. Lesson from uh, Northern Ireland. One comment about about it uh, only, because I really have to think about it, and by now I'm really tired. Um, The person who negotiated the Northern Ireland um, Good Friday agreement with an American senator by the name of uh, Mitchell. And he was quite successful in Ireland, Northern Ireland, and then he was sent to the Middle East. After a very short period of time, he returned to the United States defeated. So I don't know if. <laughs> You know, sorting out the conflict in Northern Ireland you know, could be a guide to us to how to solve the Arab Israeli Palestinian conflict. So it was not a full answer to the question, but I really have to think about it. About the Orthodoxy, it's a very interesting question, because many of them, of course, don't serve in the army. But interestingly enough, if you Uh, What's the news, you probably know, Middle Eastern news, there were uh, huge demonstrations in Israel uh, three days ago because there is a new law uh, asking, demanding, requiring the Orthodox to serve in the military. Uh, So, um, yes, it is true that the Arabs uh, don't serve, but there is pressure now on Orthodox in Israel to serve in the Israeli army. Can you speak up, please? No, it doesn't make them um, second-class uh, um, citizens. And in their, in their neighbourhoods, um, the roads are better and the sewage system is better than the
0: Palestinian villages in Israel. I agree. And finally, if, if the conflict is a racket, who's making all the money? <laughs>
1: I don't really know. <laughs> obviously not us. <laughs> right, I
0: think... Uh, I think it's, it's testament to the wide-ranging uh, talk and I think uh, the, the courage of the speaker that I noticed that he alienated both sides of the debate in the audience, which I think is something to be commended. I take away two images, a full Monty peace process, which probably won't happen, <laughs> and a flower intifada. Before we thank him, um, I just want to, our next event is on the 19th of February on the ethnography of the Iranian revolution, and I hope to see you there but more importantly thank our our speaker.